Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. We're delighted to be able to bring you this bonus episode in collaboration with Osiris Educational and the World Education Summit. I had the privilege of hosting a session with Sir Michael Barber at the World Education Summit back in March and it was a conversation that I really wanted to share widely um, if I could because I know it will connect with so many of you. I'm grateful to Anne-Marie and Stephen, who are the founders of the World Education Summit, and of course to Sir Michael Barber himself for agreeing to collaborate with us and enable us to share this conversation through the Changing Conversations uh, podcast. So what you're about to listen to is Michael's session in which he shares insights from his recent book, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. The purpose of this book is to inspire people to strive to change the world for the better through both their personal lives and their work. Michael recognises that the biggest gap in many lives is the gap between aspiration and achievement and between hopes and dreams and in his words, the often brutal daily reality. Michael's book helps us to narrow that gap. You may feel the need to take some notes. I hope you enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome our next speaker to the stage. So we have with us um, Sir Michael Barber. Um, Michael is a world leading expert on government delivery, education systems, systemic innovation and education reform. And in the UK, he led the Prime Minister's delivery unit from 2001 to 2005. But since then, he's gone on and worked um, on delivery and system wide reforms in over 50 countries. So I know I, from, for one, am delighted to have the opportunity to both hear from you this morning, uh, Michael, but also to be able to um, dig into to some of the content that you're going to share with us as well. But for now, I'm going to hand over to you um, to share some more with us about your book, Accomplishment. Thank you very much, Sarah, and thanks for the introduction. I'm looking forward to the dialogue after, after I've presented and uh, we can have a, a free-flowing conversation about getting things done. Um, as you said in that very generous introduction, I've spent most of my the last 25 years of my career working on how governments can effectively get big things done that improve the quality of delivery of domestic policy. And when I say delivery, I mean delivery to the point that the citizens and the users of services notice the difference, see, feel it and benefit from it. So for me, it's not enough to publish a white paper or get a headline or make a speech, you have to actually change people's lives for the better. That's what delivery means. And um, I, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions from you about that when I've 
finish my presentation. But as you said, I, I, I'm going to talk about the, the book accomplishment uh, that was published to, uh, last year. Uh, and the reason I'm going to talk about it is this. After I'd worked, as you mentioned in the introduction, for the Blair government on delivery, I then began working for other governments around the world on delivery. And each country is different, each culture is different, the constitutions are different, the, the personalities of the prime ministers and presidents vary. But there's, there's a pattern that if you put it in place, you see that things get done, outcomes get delivered, outcomes that the citizens notice, see, feel and benefit from. And then having done that for a while, I then began in seeing in other fields, nothing to do with government, this same pattern. I saw it in elite sport. I did some work with Team Sky when they kept winning the Tour de France and then some other Grand Tours. Uh, I've done work for the FA Technical Advisory Board, helping Gareth Southgate prepare for the 2018 World Cup in Russia and last year's Euros. And while England didn't win those tournaments, they did better than they'd done for many, many years. And you see this same pattern replicating itself. Then I saw that it happened in history, that it happened in science, that it happened in art, that it happened in business. And I thought, actually, it'd be a really good idea to test myself, come and write down the pattern of accomplishment, tell some great stories of accomplishment through history and across all these fields that will inspire people. And if you think about the world we currently live in, you look at the prospects for humanity. I deal with this in the, the last chapter or two of the book. There are lots of challenges we face. Uh, we've just had the big COP26 climate change challenge in Glasgow. Every country in the world pretty much is signed up to a net zero target. But my God, that's going to be tough to deliver for everybody and very tough for some people. And do they have the government capacity? Uh, I look at the challenges in international relations and the breakup of the, the sort of post-Cold War rules-based order into something a bit more chaotic and a little bit more uncertain, rather challenging, uh, to put it mildly. I look at what's happening to biodiversity. I look at what's happening to artificial intelligence uh, and the ethics raised by all of that. And I think in that set of challenges, it's quite easy to get gloomy and pessimistic, to be honest. Uh, but I call myself in the book a terrified optimist. I can see these threats, but I can also see the potential benefits of all of those things. Um, and so in writing accomplishment, I was trying to show people there's a pattern to accomplishment that you can apply to running a half marathon on your own, uh, to a sports team doing better, to a government department being more successful at delivery, uh, to Galileo finding the mountains on the moon, uh, and so on. But we can also, if we've got that pattern, we can apply it to helping humanity deliver on the climate change targets agreed at COP26, to uh, think through new ways of managing the environment to release and enhance biodiversity rather than see it on steady decline. So the pattern of accomplishment, if I've managed to at least uh, get well towards defining it, actually something that could be very, very useful in personal lives, in family life, in business, in schools, in universities, in organizations, in governments, and globally. So that's what the book is about. And if you, this is obviously a conference about education reform. If we look at education reform systems, actually, on the positive side, in the 25 years up to 2018, 2019, uh, there was a lot of progress. 
not by any means perfect, lots and lots of challenges. I, for example, spent 10 years working on education reform in Punjab, Pakistan, visited 54 times, we made progress, but nobody would say that was a great system by the time we finished. We had more children in school, they were learning more, the teachers were showing up, the textbooks were better, uh, the outcomes were measurably better, but they were a long way from what you want. However, over those 25 years up to 2018, 2019, we did learn about education reform. We did get to know the patterns of education reform that if you combine it with the pattern of accomplishment would deliver really significant gains. And we've seen that in many countries, Estonia, Canada, uh, Britain, actually uh, often underestimated a number of US states like uh, Massachusetts and Tennessee. So you go, you go through all of that, but the pandemic hit education really hard. Lots of children, uh, not attending school for all kinds of reasons. Quite a few teachers not able to attend school for all kinds of reasons. Uh, evidence that standards slipped, especially for the most uh, disadvantaged or students from disadvantaged backgrounds where the home life was uh, often challenging through the pandemic. Uh, and so we've lost ground on outcomes. We've lost ground even on student attendance uh, and we've got to get it back. And then we've got to go further and think about the future that we're going into and that our children are hopefully going to uh, not just thrive in, but lead humanity through uh, to, to a successful second half of the 21st century. So the pattern of accomplishment that I'm going to describe now is very relevant to educators, whether you're a teacher, a head teacher, running a school, somebody administrating or running a school system, you're in a university, you're in a college, the challenge of preparing this generation of young people for the challenges ahead is one of the most fundamental tasks facing all of us wherever we are in the world. Uh, and the pandemic set things back. And here's the thing. We know that education systems weren't good enough before the pandemic. The pandemic made them worse. So the burning platform for education reform is intensified by the pandemic, not set back by it. The demands of it are all the more important. And we have to combine good thinking about education reform with good thinking about delivery and accomplishment. And then there's a real opportunity that within a relatively short space of time, we can overtake where we were uh, in 2018, 2019, uh, and continue to make progress. So what is the pattern of accomplishment? Well, the first thing is you have to be ambitious. So point one is ambition. Um, anybody can do easy things. Uh, accomplishment is about doing difficult things. Things like improving education systems rapidly after the pandemic. Oh. Right. Um, um, Blair, hopefully you can edit that bit out. It, it was the, uh, an on. on expected intervention from my coffee machine turning itself off. I should have turned it off before. So I've just been talking about ambition. Is it, will you be able to edit that out? Blair? Yes, I will. That's not a problem. Yeah, if you just pick up where you were. Thank you very much. So the first thing is about ambition. Um, we need to set some goals for where we'd like education systems to get to in 2025, in 2030 and beyond, just as we've done in relation to climate change. It's no good. Uh, simply 
feeling set back by the pandemic. We have to see it as an opportunity to do some new things, to do some ambitious things, to learn more rapidly globally from each other. Uh, that's a hard thing to say, but it's uh, it's necessary. I was once in Pakistan just after they had that very big flood. You might remember it, it covered, water covered an area the size of England. Um, and I happened, not knowing there was going to be a flood, I'd planned to go and meet the leaders of the, of the education reform uh, in Islamabad. And I arrived literally days after the flood had begun to recede. And the education leaders of the country came to this meeting and they basically, they looked shell-shocked. They'd all been um, transferred temporarily to deal with the flood, quite understandably, quite rightly. And now they came into this room looking shell-shocked and they said, I'm summarizing, they said, we can't do education reform anymore. We've had a flood. And my heart went out to them actually, but I didn't actually say anything as sympathetic as I felt. What I said was, did the flood make your schools better? And obviously it didn't, it made them worse. It had washed away quite a number of schools. And so my argument was you had a big education challenge before the flood and it's even bigger afterwards. So we have to do this. And the same applies now to the world after the pandemic. We had a big education challenge before the pandemic made it worse. It's even more of a burning platform now. So the first thing is to be ambitious about what we can achieve in five and 10 years. And we know much more about how to do education reform than we've ever known before. So we're well placed through that. And we've got plenty of experienced education reformers, many of them in this room uh, who can take that on. The second thing is after you've got the ambition and the, the goal set country by country, but also globally perhaps, is you need a kind of a map. You need to map the landscape. Where are we? You need to be honest about the state of affairs. Uh, what are the big challenges? How do we understand the challenges we face? And what are we going to do about it? So there's a, there's a phase, it doesn't need to be long, where you're assembling the best picture you can of the current state of affairs uh, and you're being honest with yourselves. So ambition and then mapping. And then you can do these things in parallel. Then you need to do some planning. Uh, everybody knows that um, any good plan never actually survives, as they say in the military, contact with the enemy. The, uh, no plan is perfect. Every plan, once you start unfolding it and trying to put it into practice, turns out not to be quite right. But the planning is fundamentally important. So you do the planning. You don't spend long on it. A plan is not, as some governments around the world seem to think, a beautiful document written in essay style with a glossy cover that gets published, gets some headlines and then gets put on a shelf. A plan is something that sets out the actions you're gonna take, who's gonna take them and by when, the deadlines. So real practical operational planning. And then without waiting for the plan to be perfect, you need to get started. And to get started, you need the next element I want to mention, which is the small, group of people who are gonna start leading this education reform in your country or your province or your school. And I call that the guiding coalition, the, the group of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people who are gonna make this thing happen. It's not necessarily a management team, there may be other influential people. It might involve the management team, but it might, uh, if, you're, if it's a school system, there might be very influential people in the community who can help shape it. Uh, if uh, it's a school system, there may be very influential people in the teaching profession who can help lead it. So work out who the seven to 10 people 
on whom you depend most to get this job done and build them as a coalition, inspire them with a vision, build them into it, consult them, involve them, uh, and make sure they, as far as possible, stay aligned. And then from that guiding coalition, a very small number of people, but much better and more effective than one person can ever be on their own and build ever widening circles of leadership. So you start with the, the core group, but you consciously build leadership out through your chain of academy schools, for example, or out through a whole system as we did in Punjab, Pakistan. So at the event, eventually you start with a small group of people in the hall and then all the 36 district leaders are lined up and you spent time with them and they're all inspired and then they're inspiring the head teachers and you're constantly consulting the front line at the same time you're building from this guiding coalition to something that ceases to be just a core group and becomes a movement for education reform. So ambition, a map, a plan or planning and a coalition that you're constantly and consciously growing all the time. And then uh, not to be neglected, a data system. You need to know what's happening in real time as far as possible and whether your reforms are working. And if your reforms are ambitious, the chances are you've never done something this difficult before and you don't know enough at the beginning how to achieve that goal so you have to learn as you go because if you don't learn as you go you're not going to be able to achieve the target and this is where the data comes in the data doesn't tell you what to do but it informs your thinking it informs your thinking at the level of the system but again in Punjab where there are 55,000 schools it, they're also the data is being used at every school so each school gets got during our Punjab education reform, every month got data that compared each school to every other one of the 55,000 schools. So the, by, the, by the 12th of March, you had the February data for every school and the system had that data in Lahore and each of the 36 districts uh, could see how they compared to each other. So once you've got that kind of data on attendance, on the quality of education, on the quality of facilities or whatever it is, you can begin to monitor the system. Uh, in Punjab, we also did it for health reform. We did it for vaccination of young children before the pandemic. So not that kind of vaccination, vaccination against young children, against the childhood basic diseases. And there were, there were lots of vaccinators. There was plenty of vaccine, uh, but the system wasn't really working. We gave every vaccinator a tablet and then we can track where they're going. And then every time they vaccinate a child, they photograph the child and the photograph goes instantly into a computer in Lahore, wherever they are in Punjab. There's a, about 100 million people in Punjab. So you've got this process where people have, and, and so in the Department of Health in Lahore, you can see hour by hour where all the children have been vaccinated and where the gaps are on the map. And then after a while, you can direct the vaccinators to the gaps on the map and then you fill those in using the same process. That process resulted in the most rapid rollout of vaccination of children to herd immunity in the history of humanity. So the data can help you do these things. It's not difficult to get data. Well, it's difficult, but it's not, it's not impossible. It's always possible to get good data to help you monitor implementation. And the faster you get data uh, and the more accurate the data is, the better it will be. But here's the thing. Uh, the data doesn't tell you what to do. Uh, we talk about evidence-based policy, but the evidence doesn't tell you what to do. It gives you the information, but you have to make a judgment. It's your goal. It's your ambition that you set at the beginning of this process. You have to decide. So uh, Dave Brailsford, who ran Team Sky, the great cycling team, and before that ran the British Olympic cycling team, he says the data informs 
it doesn't decide. I tell his story and accomplishment. That is such an important insight. You have to make judgments. Um, so whatever the evidence tells you, you don't ignore it. You take it into account and say, in our judgment, we should do this or we could do that or we, we should be a bit more cautious or we should be a bit bolder. But you still have to make a decision. So um, but getting the data systems in place is so important. Um, it's been very, very important in countries monitoring and managing the pandemic over the last two years. And that's had its ups and downs. That was a whole new thing for the whole of humanity. We were all struggling around the world to manage that. But it's really driven forward the ability of government to collect, assemble, manage data, and then make judgments on the basis of it. And you see that influencing countries all across the world. And then um, the next bit of the pattern that I want to identify is routines. The leadership of an education reform or any reform or any major accomplishment needs to gather routinely to review progress using the data, checking against the plan, checking what's happening. Are we on track? Are we not, tra not on track? Is that part of the system on track and that part not on track? Are we on track in that subject, but not that subject? That kind of question. And what normally happens in public systems is the leadership only gathers when there's some bad media headlines or something's going horribly wrong. I'm saying, don't wait for things to go horribly wrong, build a routine. So when I was working for Tony Blair, every two months and then in the later years, every three months uh, in a routine meeting called a stock take, Blair reviewed progress on health outcomes or education outcomes or making the trains run on time. And you knew those meetings were coming up. And so we in the, the, the Blair Delivery Unit, and that kind of function can work in any organization, are saying to people, remember, you've got the stock take coming up in a couple of weeks. We've got this problem. We, we've seen it in the data. You've seen it. We've seen it. Could we try and come up with a solution so that when your Secretary of State comes to see the Prime Minister in two weeks, he or she can say, we understand we've got this challenge and this is what we plan to do about it. And then we have a conversation about how to make it happen. So you build the routine in and the routine drives progress. And um, I've written a whole chapter in uh, how to run a government and a whole chunk in, um, in accomplishment about routines. And if you think about it, the very word sounds boring. So how do you write an exciting chapter about routines? Well, the answer is uh, I've tried and you can see it in the book that I tell you, exciting or not, they are fundamental to driving progress uh, uh, in these big public systems. In, and actually, in, even in your own life, it's very easy to, to start off saying, well, I'm going to go to the gym every day or I'm going to go to the gym five times a week. And then the first time you get a cold week in spring that you weren't expecting, you say, oh, I think this time I'll just sit and read the paper and drink my coffee. And then you drift off the agenda uh, and then several months later, you're thinking, what happened to that? And well, you look in your wardrobe and there's all the kit you bought for going to the gym. Some of it not even out of the plastic bags it came in. So routines are important. And then problem solving. There's lots of ways of solving problems. Uh, a lot of people throw up their hands at problems and say they're too difficult. Sometimes people think, oh, well, if we just um, don't worry about it, it'll go away. Let's just see what happens. Let's hope things will get better. I had a friend years ago when I was at university who had a bicycle that didn't work uh, very well when he got home one day. And I said, oh, how are you going to get that fixed? He said, I'm going to put it in the garden and see if it will get better. We do that with public systems all the time. Uh, but it's not the answer in uh, 99 cases out of 100. So if you've, if you've identified a problem, try something out. If that doesn't work, try something else out. But don't neglect it. And then finally, all of this 
takes time. You have to persist. You have to stick at it. You have to keep going, even when the going is tough. And that's why the guiding coalition will be important because that can um, you can encourage and strengthen each other's morale. And if you're the leader of this, whether in a, a school or a classroom or an education system, your willpower, your belief, your commitment, your communication of that belief and commitment will be fundamental. People have to believe difficult things can be done and the pattern of accomplishment is designed to make that possible. There will be ups and downs on the way, but these things can be done. All of you around the world who are in this summit, I wish you all the best. This is a very challenging time for education systems, but this is a time to get ambitious about what we can do for the next generation of young people to enable them to have the skills, the vision, the ambition to take on the problems that will face humanity in the next 20 or 30 years. And if we get all of that right, the second half of the 20th century, 21st century will be absolutely fantastic. But there's a big task to do in the meantime. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, uh, Michael. You make it sound so easy <laughs> in the way that you describe it. And I think um, I like the way you use the term pattern, um, the pattern of accomplishment, because I think pattern makes it sound like something we can kind of get on board with. And, and one of the things that I liked about the book as well is the range of examples that you used. You know, you've got you know, some of the examples you talked about there, but also really personal goals and some of your own personal goals as well, which I think help us all to relate to what that pattern might look like at different at different levels and um, how intentional was that for you it, it was intentional in writing a book it was something i had um i'd learned or i couldn't be sure i'd learned it till i'd wrote it down but i think i have learned that the the pattern of accomplishment you can apply it to yourself um i, I was in, inducted into that thought in 2009 i think i in the um preface of the book i talk about this I was teaching uh, at the Moscow Higher School of Economics. I did two years as a visiting professor there. I went for um, a, f a few weeks each year. And the students, were, they were lovely and very clever. And they said, look, Michael, you've seen what government's like in Russia. Um, this is all going to be, this sounds like too idealistic for us. But I'll tell you what, Michael, we could apply this to ourselves and our own careers and the things we want to do. And then we started talking about that and they got very creative about that. But then I did apply it to myself. And in the book, I give the example of cycling from the north of Scotland home to Devon and of uh, trying to cycle a, a time trial in under 25 minutes and get, using marginal gains and uh, getting some great advice from Dave Brails from even being lent at Team Sky Bike. So all of these things uh, can be done but you do have to persist with them and they do apply at a personal level or at mega system level. In fact, you know, to, to, to take the contrast from my uh, modest attempts at a time trial, then there's the interview in the book with Luisa Diogo, the former prime minister of Mozambique, who achieved fantastic economic growth over the years. She was finance minister and then prime minister. But I loved in that interview when I said to her, well, how did you achieve that, Luisa? She said, I didn't achieve it at all people in Mozambique achieved it she said the job of government is to unlock the music in people we unlock the music in the people especially the women of Mozambique it's a fantastic thought yeah it's a beautiful thought um and I suppose kind of connected to that you started by talking about you know we need to start by being ambitious what what was your ambitious goal if you like for the book what's the legacy that you want to leave with this book I, I'd like to I, I, I would like the book and 
I've done my best, but it's up to the readers. I want the book to inspire people to do things that they might not otherwise have done. Uh, it could be at system level or uh, at personal level to say, actually, now I've seen this, I could do that. And the stories that you mentioned in the book about, you know, from sport and art and uh, music, uh, uh, science, government, and so on, they could, they, they're meant to inspire. And then the pattern is there. So that's, that's my goal. It would inspire people to take on and do things that are ambitious and difficult and that they'll feel a, few, a huge sense of fulfillment if they make progress towards them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this, we're an education audience. So, and, and as I've said in this um, introduction today, the challenges facing education systems are huge. So that we need people to be inspired to take these things on. Yeah. And in your experience of working with educators and education systems around the world, where are we on that kind of tendency to be ambitious? Do you think we are ambitious enough? Are we bold enough in what we set out to achieve? I would, I'm, I would say you, you could, we, we educators, count myself in, we could be bolder. Mm-hmm. We tend to see the challenges and the difficulties of doing things more than we see the opportunities. I think when we, when something new is proposed, the natural tendency, maybe it's a natural human tendency, and I don't think educators are different from anybody else in this, the natural tendency is to see all the reasons why that can't be done. Mm. We don't calculate often are the risks of staying the same. So if you, if you reject all the possible new ambitious things, you end up staying the same. Mm. And the risks of staying the status quo now are huge, given the problems facing humanity. So. There might be there are always risks with taking on ambitious things, but the risks of doing nothing are greater. Uh, so I, I think education education people generally need to be more ambitious, more open, uh, and more willing to take on the status quo and challenge it. Now that's easy to say, and we're all human beings, and that all these things are difficult. And there are some fantastic educators doing exactly what I'm I'm saying at, at every level in the system. So. It's not, it's not a bad picture, but there's a lot to do. Yeah, yeah. And you also said, you know, we know more about reform, education reform and how to do it now than we've ever, than we ever have. Um, how do we, how do we take that knowledge and put it into practice? Like, how do we use that? Because we can know a lot and carry on doing what we've been doing. What, what do we need to do differently? I th- yeah, I mean, th- th- that's, a, that's a big question. I think that the fundamental point of the process I'm describing is that you learn as you go. Mm. And we're educators. Surely mm. we believe in the possibility of learning as you go, whatever you're doing. Okay. And the system of trying something, checking the data and the evidence, reviewing it, and then trying to do it better, and looking at the variation within a system, and sometimes in education systems, the variation between schools, between districts, but also within schools, learning from that variation and trying to get better. So I think that the most... The most important thing that I would try to convey in the book is that the, the, pro, that the pattern of accomplishment is a learning pattern and it should apply to educators there for more than to anybody else. And secondly, it's amazing what you can do when you put your mind to it. Mm. You know, just take something out like the, the English education system where I've seen the data. In the mid-90s, uh, Bangladeshi students in England were way behind the national average. And now they've, certainly before the pandemic, they had overtaken the national average. If you had said to people in 1995, that's what we're going to do, they'd have said, that's 
I, I, even I, I think, would have said that sounds really impossible, but, but, but we did it. And we did it through school reform, through the literature and numeracy strategies, through, through some great school improvement in Tower Hamlets, where a lot of Bangladeshis live, uh, through the aspirations of that community. I've been to East London Mosque twice, I'm going again soon. You see the combination of an aspiring community with some really good school reform, and you th achieve things that you didn't think were possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, we need that, that kind of mindset everywhere. Yeah, so I was going to say then there's an element of mindset and belief as much as skills and that action. Yes, and and then and then people when you start doing something and it makes progress, then people the, the skeptics. I'm I, I'm not against skepticism. I'm against cynicism. The skeptics say, "Well, will it be sustainable?" And the answer is, nothing is inevitable. So it's not necessarily a sustainable. But if people keep doing the right things, if the leaders of the system keep doing the right things, yes, it is sustainable. But um, if you stop doing them, it'll go back. That doesn't mean it's the bad, wrong thing to do. And a little bit, that, that question, is it sustainable, has sometimes been used as a reason for not trying bold things. Because you can't say, if you try something bold, you can't at the beginning say, yeah, that is sustainable. You don't know. Mm -hmm. You know whether people stick with it. Yeah. And is that where the guiding coalition is a really key element? Because I think I've come across that before in, in, your, in your work, and I think it's quite a a unique concept. I don't know that it's something we automatically do in the world of education, the idea of a guiding coalition. Yes, I think, well, it's not just education, but I think you're right. The, and I think we, you know, there's a little bit in some of the, the writing about education that's all about the sort of hero head teacher uh, alone against the world as they were turning turning around the school and all of that jargon or, or the, the great leader of a system that comes in and sorts everything out. But when you go through the history of any of those things, there's the, there might be a very small number of people who were committed to the ambitious change at the beginning, yeah. but it won't be just one. One person can't do it. Yeah. But if they if they build a small team, and I think um, you know uh, the the morale you get from working with a team that is really bonded around the vision and the approach that you're taking to realizing the vision. In in my life, my experience of working for four years with David Blunkett when he was education secretary, um, 1997 to 2001 was absolutely fantastic we went through lots of really difficult times but the system undoubtedly improved both in terms of the way it was funded the way teachers were trained and in the outcomes that uh, children were getting but I can remember going into David's office with some piece of bad news in 1999 or something like that two years in when you often have an implementation dip when you start doing something it gets worse before it gets better and going in and telling him um this piece of bad news and somebody else was already in there and they were, they'd already told him some bad news and uh, I'm not sure everybody in the audience I know the British people know David, David was blind from birth so he doesn't have the light on so it's quite gloomy in the room uh, and then we're all sitting at the table contemplating these various pieces of bad news and David's guide dog comes over sits down next to him puts her chin on his lap and David pats the dog which is called Lucy on the head and says Lucy this is as good as it gets and those moments of humour at times yeah. like that, where the, you know the guiding coalition is absolutely committed. So whatever we feel in that room, we're going to get out of there and get on with the next phase of this. That is a very that that gives you a strength that you can't get from anything else. Yeah. I think it's important to build the team, consciously build teams like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key key bit for me. And what you've said there is like consciously building that team. Yeah. 
to do that. So there's a there's a kind of nuance, I suppose, to who's in that team as opposed to who you might automatically think should be in the guiding coalition. Can you say a bit more about how we go about that? Yeah, so, so um, and by the way, one of the underlying premises of the whole of the pattern of accomplishment and everything I've written about government is you building interpersonal relationships that work is fundamental. It doesn't matter how good you get the system going. If you're not, if you don't relate to people properly, if you yell at them when they're failing, if you if you don't uh, empathize with them when they're facing challenges, if you don't persuade them, negotiate with them in a principled way, mm-hmm. then it was, I, I was very conscious working for a prime minister back then and then later in other countries for prime ministers that you get you get a certain amount of power from working for the top person in a country but if you go around yelling at people actually you're just using that power up you're spending it right. uh, whereas if you build a relationship and you say to somebody we can help you solve this problem and when it's solved we'll give you the credit you build an upward spiral so that the prime minister's power is no longer being spent it's being invested and this is what you need to do with the guiding coalition. You need to get everybody, the, 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 the five to 10 people need to understand how we're doing this. They need to share the vision uh, and they need to really understand at a level of depth how this is meant to work so that whatever they're doing, they don't have to have endless meetings because they all know at a, almost at a spiritual as well as a conceptual level what this, is, what this is meant to be and how it's meant to work. And then they can adjust as they go with much rarer conversations than you need if you're trying to put a management team together. The management team might well be part of it, but if you're in a government department um, or a minister of education, you will have some people you need in your department, in your guiding coalition, but you probably need the president's or the prime minister's education advisor on board. You certainly need the finance ministry or treasury education person signed up. There may be a chief inspector of schools somewhere that be very good if they were sympathetic to what you're trying to do so you go through the people in the system with the most influence yeah on whether or not you get your task done and they're the people you need to sign up and then you build from that and you know when when i when i started in punjab there were there was me one other person and the chief minister thought this could work Mm -hmm. by the time i left nine years later I i didn't stay there all the time i went 50 odd time there were hundreds of people in the room absolutely passionate about this. And I thought, that's it. We've done, you know, the Guiding Coalition has become a movement. And that, I think, is what, is what you really want to see. Yeah. And what, you've touched on communication a few times, but, like, one of the things that often comes up um, as being a problem in a system or an organisation is communication. There's either not enough of it, it's not clear, People think they've said things. People didn't hear what was said. How do we how do we get over that challenge or niggle in the? Program? Yeah, it is very difficult, and and communication needs to be both ways. And you can never do enough of it. You really do have to spend time on communication and listening. Um, getting out into schools if you're leading a school reform, listening to what people are saying, not necessarily conceding to everything they say, but listening and and making sure they're understood. That they they've seen that they've been understood, uh, and then making adjustments. What we um, did in the education reform in England in the, uh, in the David Blunkett days, I and my team had a the literacy and numeracy program in primary schools, which was um, a big passion for me and still is. We, we In addition to tracking what happened to how many people were passing a test every uh, uh, every May and how many, you know, what, what Ofsted was saying and tracking all the data, we had a what I call an emotional trajectory. What would teachers think about this as we implemented? So at the beginning, so we, we drew the emotional trajectory and it went like this. 
at the beginning, they'd say, who does the government think they are to tell us how to teach reading and writing? Mm -hmm. um, and then the second stage would be, well, I still don't think they should be telling us how to do this, but I must admit the training's good. And then the third bit was, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but it's beginning to work in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And the fourth bit was, I wish we'd done this years ago. <laughs> now, so, so there's an emotional trajectory. It turned out to be optimistic. Um, but you can see the idea there. And I think you can do, if you're planning, if you're planning to implement a reform, take big stakeholder groups and imagine what would their emotional trajectory Mm. Or, or what would you like it to be and how would you get there so to get to the emotional tra trajectory i just described you have to have very very good training yeah and it was very good and we monitored that we've got feedback from all the participants in hundreds and hundreds of sessions on how good the training was so we did know so it, you again in addition to the data you need that, that kind of data on how people are perceiving and feeling the the, the changes you're making yeah and in your book, you talk about you've you've broken it into two parts: the kind of getting ready and the making it happen part. You know, and I guess the the getting ready, as you described with the gym, can be quite good fun. You know, buying all the kit and getting all the nice stuff and thinking about it and planning and all of that's quite nice. It's quite safe. It feels good to be doing that side of stuff. But then the doing of it is always harder. There is that implementation dip. You you mentioned, you know, it's the kind of the boring bit, the routines. Um, and dare I say it, and I'm sure education is not alone in this, but we do quite like bringing new things in each year. How do we, how do we manage that tension between new things keep coming in, but actually we need to build those routines and we need to kind of dig into that process? Yes, it's a very, it's a very good question. Um, and the, it, the, 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 what you've, first of all, you've got to get into the mindset of, we're going to get this done and we're going to persist with it and stick with it um, till it's done. But the, but the way to think about the new things is not bring new things from outside, but from the learning process I've described, as we implement this, we're going to learn some things and we're going to find, discover that that didn't really work very well. And we're going to stop in that. And this worked a lot better. And we're going to do more of that. And then some of some parts of your system will innovate as yeah. the pressure for delivery continues. And you've got to learn from the innovations. And so if you can get the newness from that, like, for example, when we were doing the health reforms in the Blair administration, uh, one of them was nobody should wait more than four hours in an A&E department or uh, what Americans call an emergency room before yeah. they got seen and treated and either admitted or sent home, uh, sorted out. And that what we, we spent two years as a whole system trying to get that done. We weren't really making progress. But then we discovered in one hospital they had actually not just hit the target, but exceeded it. So then we went and learned at a level of depth, how did they do that? And then we turned it into a package that you could spread around the system. And the spread of that made an enormous difference. So you have to, I think the, new, the, the, the routines have to be relentless. And uh, as I was saying, and you were saying, have an element of boring, but what you learn from the routines can be absolutely fascinating. Mm. Mm. Now, and I think in, the, in your book, there's a mention of a lecture you did around joy and data. And yeah. I think, you know, there's something in that is connecting that in my mind as, as you're talking. You know, I think we've got lots of data in education. It doesn't always bring joy. <laughs> joy is not something we automatically think of when we think of data, I don't think, many of us. Yeah. Um, and, and I like what you were saying about how we use the data, but actually it's us that make the decisions and it's those ambitious goals that help is the bringing of bringing the two together. 
Exactly. The, the, the lecture you're referring to is the Australian Learning Lecture. It was the inaugural Australian Learning Lecture in Melbourne, and it was a privilege to, to deliver it. And they gave me the title, <coughs> and it really made me think about, mm. uh, about what I wanted to say about that. And the joy you can get from using data effectively to improve children's lives, in, in the case of the school system, is fantastic. Um, the, the, the fascination of the data itself. Um, and, you know, the, I think I, in that lecture, I talk about um, a conversation I had with uh, Lawrence Olivier's son, Richard Olivier, who, who, um, who does a lot, a lot of training using Shakespeare plays as metaphors. He's, he's a brilliant and wonderful man. And he was saying, well, all this stuff about data and routine, Michael, it's a bit boring. Don't we need more of the kind of Henry V inspiring speech? And I think you don't want to fall into that false dichotomy. Yes, you want the inspiring speech. But as I said to Richard Olivier on that occasion, when, when Henry V got to the battlefield at Agincourt, surely you recognise that somebody made sure that on the ships that came from England, there were enough bows and arrows and enough arrows and the soldiers were well equipped and they had shoes on their feet. And uh, somebody's got to do that. Mm. It's important for any major task. Um, if I did my long cycle ride, I've got to be sure that I can get my bike fixed if something goes wrong with it. It's not exciting, but it's essential to getting the task done. So I think um, you, you, the joy comes from the fulfillment of the ambition and the goal, um, and the data is a means of getting to that. Uh, so it's a, it's a contributor to the joy. Uh, and then some people, I think I'm one of them, can get joy just from looking at a beautiful graph or, <laughs> or, or just for, from learning something that stands out from the data and think, wow, that's fascinating. But not everybody's in, in that mindset, but it is essential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been absolute joy, genuine joy to to listen to you and to have the opportunity to to ask you questions and to kind of reflect a little bit on on the the pattern of learning and the pattern of accomplishment. Um, but just to finish off, you mentioned, you know, at the beginning there, you said you're a terrified optimist. You know, what what are we optimistic about? Do you think looking forward? Well, thank you, and, and uh, thank you for, for the opportunity to talk with you as well, Sarah, and thank you for reading my book, Accomplishment, and uh, it's it's been a pleasure to have this dialogue. The, the, it's very easy to look at all the challenges facing humanity in a very sober way and get overwhelmed and daunted by it. But the things that can make you excited and positive and optimistic, are, first of all, there's a pattern to accomplishment, and I've tried to describe it, but, but more importantly, um, human ingenuity is incredible yeah. so we, we, there, there are talented people all over the planet doing absolutely brilliant things and they can inspire us to do better things um, and the better our education systems the more such people there will be and one of the things we easily forget in education is the generations coming out of our schools around the world are the best educated generation in history so as we face these big challenges there's the best educated generation in the history, uh, certainly I've, I've seen the data in England, but I think it's true globally. You look at the number of uh, children, especially girls now, are getting into school. Of course, there are many challenges. Of course, the pandemic was a setback, but we have the best educated generations we've ever had. Uh, and I think what we did without them uh, in the past. Um, so we can do more and we can do better, but that education has to include not just kind of technical content, although that's important. It also has to... Um, encompass a kind of ethical perspective on what it means to live on a planet in the 21st century, what it means to build thriving, diverse cities, what it means to have a different relationship to nature, what it means to manage and prepare 
for the climate change threats ahead. We can do that, uh, but nobody's going to say that that's easy. We know it's difficult. The pattern of accomplishment will help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you said, you hope your legacy is that it inspires people to do things they might not have done before. And, and I hope people listening today or listening on replay feel inspired to consider and explore things they may not have explored before using the pattern of learning and the pattern, pattern of accomplishment to do that. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us, and we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again. Stay safe and take good care.